0: I'm Emily Rooney, and you are listening to Beat the Press. On this episode, the slap heard round the world. It was sickening. Maybe, but some media analysis has been too. And Ginny Thomas, who has always blamed the liberal press for what happened during her husband's confirmation to the Supreme Court, now faces questioning over her role in the Capitol insurrection. She texted Meadows, help this great president stand firm. And the revolving door between politicians and journalists is nothing new, but one recent hire by CBS got this reaction from Stephen Colbert. What the f***? CBS staffers are cringing over the hiring of Mick Mulvaney. And when it comes to Russia's move into Ukraine, is it revanchism or irredentism, or what is that? We'll parse it out. And our panel's rants and raves of the week. Joining me are the Boston Globe's Lila Alphonse, media consultant Susie Banakareem, and former NECN anchor Mike Nikitas. First up, going back and looking at the whole episode in hindsight, it's like two worlds colliding, two extremely different original reactions. First, Will Smith himself, who seemed to be defending slapping Chris Rock for an insulting joke against his wife, while at the same time apologizing and then likening himself to the character he played in the movie, Richard Williams, the father of tennis greats Venus and Serena.
1: Richard Williams was a fierce defender of his family. I'm being called on in my life to love people and to protect people and to be a river to my people. I wanna apologize to the Academy. I wanna apologize to all my fellow nominees. Hoking Academy invites me back. Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right, then he gets hugs from everyone on the stage. He went to the after party. Then there was this sudden realization he had assaulted someone, slapped him anyway. Suddenly he was being likened to Harvey Weinstein. Columnists were calling people racist depending on how they viewed the incident. The Academy of Television Arts and Sciences condemned it as violence, which seems rich coming from the people who brought us Pulp Fiction... The Revenant, The Hateful Eight, and Parasite, just to name a few. Smith resigned from the Academy, offered a full throated apology, and then was the butt of many jokes at the Grammy Awards. So, Susie Benikareem, we discussed on an earlier podcast that New York Times op ed on cancel culture and second chances. Is this not a case where that kind of thinking would apply? I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar went so far as to say that this was going to be an reinvigoration of voter suppression. I mean, some of the analysis was just, I thought, crazy. I mean, just over the top.
2: You know, I, I don't know that I think of this as cancel culture only because I think Will Smith will be fine, to be honest. I mean, he's, he's going to continue making movies. He's an extremely popular actor. He's not, um, you know, this incident will follow him to some degree, but I don't think that this is going to Um, Fundamentally derail his career. I think that the reason it captured the imagination so much, aside from the fact that it was just sort of shocking and it made, you know, what could have been like a fairly standard, boring um, event into something that like everyone was talking about, we're all a bit on edge, to be honest. Like, we've just finished two years of being trapped in our homes, and everyone feels like they might, at least let me speak for myself, I feel like at any moment I could slightly lose it. So, I feel like what Will Smith did is Mm -hmm. what we're all sort of on the brink of doing all the time, (laughs) which is something extremely self-destructive. So I think in some ways it captured the imagination because it was like, look, stars, they're just like us. They also feel like the world is completely out of control. I think this will blow over and it'll be fine. And it gave people something to talk about that wasn't about like war and... Um, the economy and gas prices. And I think maybe people just like needed
0: that. Hmm. I don't know. But but Lila, I mean, were you surprised by any of the reaction? I mean, some people calling it the reactions were racist or I, I just I mean, it just it just broke off into a thousand different pieces instead of just sort of what it was.
3: There was a great Substack article by the writer Luo um, Oluo, um, who really looked at everyone's reactions to it. And there's a lot in that moment. There's the fact that just a few weeks before that, we were talking about protecting Black women at all costs while listening to Ketanji Brown Jackson's hearings, and then people getting mad at a Black woman getting protected. There was a lot of um, virtue signaling. I would never condone that. Or I would always protect my wife this way. There was a lot of assuming that this could happen to just anyone. There was, um, there was the fact that what you saw on stage was something that seemed out of character for two Black actors who um, their entire careers are built on kind of being acceptable to a very general audience, and what they did was not acceptable. Um, so I think there's a lot to unpack here. And I think that that's what you saw in this broad spectrum of reactions Um, There are a lot of people who had absolutely no problem with Will Smith going up and slapping Chris Rock. There are a lot of people who felt that it was inappropriate because it would have been inappropriate regardless of who slapped whom. Um, A lot of people seem to have forgotten that Chris Rock's been picking on Jada Piquette Smith for like 10 years now. This was not Mm -hmm. the first time. So even though it's a fairly innocuous quip about her hair... Um, and perhaps he did not know she's struggling with alopecia. I didn't know. It's it's not odd. No, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people thought it was a bit because they didn't know that she's struggling with this health issue. Um, so what seemed like a not really funny joke ended up getting blown out of proportion to them. Um, I guess my bottom line is there's a lot there and there are a lot of people reacting and publishing their reactions, but I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. like, it's not a leadership issue, it's a losing control issue. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think in the grand scheme of things that this will really do anything other than make people think twice about maybe what joke they say on stage and about whether just sitting in silence and not reacting to a joke may be a better way of protesting
1: it. Mike? You know, it's funny, uh, there are people who said this is the beginning of the end of the death of comedy, and and there's been a lot of analysis and I think if I had um, $20 for everybody who wanted on social media who wrote a column who said nobody's asked me about my take about Chris Rock and Will Smith but here it is boy I could buy a couple of good bottles of scotch right now right I mean so (laughs) many people and you mentioned all the movies right that you know and I was thinking immediately when you said that how about Fight Club there's only one rule about Fight Club and that is you got to slap somebody on stage not do it where nobody can talk about it right Uh, I don't know you can count me among those who initially i thought with all the stuff going on in the world right now i do not care i don't care one iota uh, i thought chris rock told the tasteless joke uh especially if he knew that she had alopecia. And to me at this point, it's still not clear that he knew she had alopecia, despite the fact that she's been open about it. A lot of people didn't know about it. My second, and and then I thought Will Smith was a complete jackass to go up and hit him. Um, And then I started to think about, I did not see that night um, what he said. I only saw that the next morning. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was just as offensive. Almost worse. Almost worse uh, as the as the slap. And then I started to think, wait a minute, Hey pal, you're, you're all worked up about this and your wife sleeps with other men and you don't care about that. And you're okay with that. Uh, I saw uh, Sean Hannity say something about that the other night. I said for, for once in my life, I kind of agree with Sean Hannity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, Am I surprised at the analysis that this I has am. had? Yes, I am. Uh, I read a lot of it. Uh, I agreed with a little bit of what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said. I thought he wrote a long... I didn't agree with all of it, particularly the part that, that you mentioned, but there were one or two points. Voter yeah, no, no. I, I thought that took it too far. Um, should he lose his Oscar? Probably, no. Probably not. No. Um, should he have been charged criminally?
0: No.
1: Probably not. Um, should he have been thrown out of the Oscars? Maybe, but how about the fact that he won? Yeah, I mean that—that that really kind of changed the whole. By the way, that changed that
0: whole storyline that he was asked to leave. Now they're saying that he wasn't. He rioting. wasn't asked yeah. to leave. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, do I think it'll have a lasting impact on I his do. career? Will it keep him from certain projects? Maybe. It's not helping. That's for sure.
0: Next up, Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has been seething for decades over the liberal media. Now we know the depths of her contempt. The committee investigating the events of January 6th, 2020, recently released a series of texts between Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Now we learn from the New York Times podcast, The Daily, that the paper had been looking into Ginny Thomas's political activities for the last nine months. Here is Times reporter, Joe Becker. For decades the two of them have been waging this sort of battle, he from the bench and she from the political trenches against what they see as the liberal order. The Times also dug up some old sound bites from Jenny Thomas here are a few.
3: This is a different America and so we're called to think differently and recognize the environment we're in. We're up against a fascist left. The left is saying they want to kill people who are voting for Kavanaugh. It's,
0: it's unbelievable. Then here are a few of the texts Jenny Thomas sent to Mark Minnows on January 6th. Help this great president stand firm. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Release the Kraken and save us from the left taking down America. We are living through what feels like the end of America. Most of us are disgusted with the VP and are in a listing mode to see where to fight with our teams. And then last, the entire integrity of the court is on the line here. So these last two texts, by the way, happened after the protest had had turned violent. And I think, Mike, one of the things that people are saying now is that she has admitted that there's some influence between her and her activities and what's going on in the court, which is why the January sex committee is calling her to testify. And we'll be asking about whether there has been any crossover, I presume. Mm.
1: I think that uh, the media is doing a good job of pursuing the story, and I think they should. Uh, I think the smoke is billowing. So far, we have no fire. Is there a true conflict of interest? Is she influencing him in a way that there is a direct connection to his rulings on the court or other influence he has with other court members, perhaps, or other people in the administration uh, in the past? Um, Has he done anything to support her efforts, at overturning the election. What if and when if cases come before the Supreme Court dealing with January 6th? I think we should continue to report on this story. I think there's a lot that's possible there. The thing about the text, though, that really gets me is they're not just fringy, they're full-blown QAnon uh, wingnut. And it was funny because I'm holding in my hand, I know that folks can't see it, but many people in New England got this true story of QAnon mailer, that came in the mail, literally hundreds of thousands of people. And my first thought was somebody like Ginny Thomas mailed that and spent a lot of money. And it told me there's a lot of money behind this. Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing was I started to read about this a little bit more. And I didn't realize that um, when she would show up, she had access to the White House and would show up and suggest people for Trump to hire. And some of them were just as fringy as her, and some he did reject, but some he said, look into this person and hire this person. And, and according to Rolling Stone, one White House staffer said, you knew on the day Jenny Thomas showed up, it was going to be a bad day for us. Hmm. So it's interesting. Uh, I think that we should continue to report on this. I think there's a legitimate, enormous story hmm. there.
0: You know, Susie, it was interesting for me anyway to, to look back all these years later, that she still resents what happened during the confirmation hearings so so many you know almost thirty years ago I guess and she has carried this grudge against the what she deems the the liberal media but at the time I'm older than most of you the liberal media was on the side of Anita Hill there's no question about that that there was a believability factor that just went everybody believed her and you know it, that's it that kind of came out in the reporting. And didn't believe Clarence Thomas. Did not believe him. So you know she. So it's interesting though that she's she's packed this all to carry with her all these years, and that actually it's interesting to me also that the Times hasn't done more about her or looked into her more in depth before now. But according to Joe Becker, they just started about a year ago.
2: Yeah, I mean it's not entirely surprising to me that she still holds on to anger from that um, confirmation hearing. I mean it was a really bruising. Difficult confirmation hearing. I think you know they took a lot of hits. Certainly, Anita Hill took a lot of hits. Whether or not you know Anita Hill sort of came out uh, more credible. Uh, look, I mean, Biden is on the record as having been uh, pretty nasty to her. So it, it wasn't like she was kind of received um, with welcome arms either. And so I think holding on to that is is normal, right? You're treated poorly in the press. You sort of feel like. Um, in general, I think Clarence Thomas doesn't isn't sort of a media darling, and I'm sure that that would influence my feelings too if I were his wife. But what she's done here is go totally wingnut, right? <laughs> There's just like a difference between being like the media hasn't treated us fairly and sending those texts, which like if I got from an erratic uncle, I would be like, Shit, he's gone fully QAnon, right? So, I mean, I think the concern here is that she's sort of crossed over into something else and something that we know was part of the Trump administration that really um, brought in very fringe ideas into the White House and was dangerous in some ways. And I think part of the issue is, is that Clarence Thomas did do a ruling on January 6th and did not recuse himself. Right. Like he has he does have this history of having actually not um, self monitor which is what we expect of supreme court justices right so i mean i think it's a valid story too i think it's one that needs to get done i don't think we should overplay the importance of jenny thomas but i do think from the perspective of how supreme court justices handle themselves um you know i think it this raises some important questions about are they really capable of self um monitoring their own biases or conflicts and whether or not there should be some other process. Like the Supreme Court should evolve like every other institution. Times have changed.
0: Lila, the January 6th committee is obviously not the media. So their line of questioning presumably will be a little bit different than it might be from some of the big media companies. But I, I can remember, you know, back during the confirmation, that there was a lot of sidebars written, even then, about Ginny Thomas, which I can understand her being resentful. Do you remember the one about she spoke in tongues? She communicated with various people through made-up languages and that kind of stuff. She's, she's always been a target, although, quite honestly, for the past decade, she seems to me that she's pretty much been on a back burner. But I would agree with everything that Mike and Suski said, that this seems to be a fair game for the media right now.
3: Um, I think it's fair game. I would argue that those sidebars don't show her as a target as much as they indicate that she's held um, unconventional beliefs that are very in line with a lot of conspiracy theories for a very long time. Um, I also think we need to stop referring to very dedicated Trump supporters as fringe. They're not fringe. There are enough of them to swing the election one way or another. Um, QAnon, is becoming less fringe but can people who believe in conspiracy theories people who believe that the way the world is changing is frightening and will end life the way they know it that's a big number of people that's not fringe and Jenny Thomas fits exactly into that demographic of women of a certain age who are white Who are very, very devout, who are very, very right-wing, who can see that the people they identify with will, at some point, no longer be in power. Um, And that's really, really frightening. So I think what you saw in a lot of those texts were um, this grasping of straws, this this need to try to preserve a way of life and a way of thinking that they feel is under attack. Um, Again, I don't think that's fringe anymore. Um, What I think the media has not done enough of so far with this story is show that the Supreme Court justice is actively sharing her point of view or tailoring his actions to line up with them. I'm not seeing that yet. Um, I know it's a danger and I know that's that's what we're worried about. But at this point, if she wasn't married to Clarence Thomas, would we be so concerned about her text to Mark Meadows or would she just be another person who was who was um, pushing to try to keep Trump in office longer than he was entitled to because he lost the election?
1: No, I, I think you're absolutely right. If she wasn't married to Clarence Thomas, we wouldn't care as much. And I think that uh, going back to uh, something that Susie said, yes, he has, um, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, he has been on a, a case that he should have recused himself to avoid all conflict of interest, or at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. But I think there are a lot more cases that are likely to come up, given what's been happening with January 6th, uh, whether there are people that are involved, uh, that were involved in the rally uh, and in the insurrection and the assault on the the Capitol or other uh, individuals, pol- politicians who may have uh, fomented it.
0: I agree. And I totally agree with what you just said, Lila. They are no longer fringe, whether we think that's frightening or not. You're right. All right. Well, he called the pandemic the biggest media hoax of the century. Now he's a media maven himself. CBS News quietly hired a new talking head recently. He is former Trump administration chief of staff Nick Mulvaney, famous for accusing the media of overhyping the pandemic. Now he is a political analyst, to the chagrin of many staffers at the network, only one of whom was willing to publicly call the network out.
1: I, for one, can't wait to hear Mulvaney's trenchant and objective political analysis, considering that back in 2020, HE SUGGESTED THAT CORONAVIRUS WAS THE MEDIA HOAX OF THE DAY. AND AFTER HIS BOSS EXTORTED ZELENSKY FOR DIRT ON THE BIDENS, HE SAID, GET OVER IT. AND JUST DAYS AFTER THE ELECTION, HE ANNOUNCED, IF HE LOSES, THE FORMER PRESIDENT WILL CONCEDE GRACEFULLY, ADDING, HE'LL FIGHT HARD TO MAKE SURE THE RESULTS ARE FAIR, AND IN THE END, HE'LL ACCEPT THE RESULT, WHATEVER IT IS. IS Mick Mulvaney PSYCHIC? GET THIS MAN TO VEGAS. HE'S NOSTRA
0: DUMBASS. That, of course, is Stephen Colbert. In response to inquiries about the hire, CBS News co-president Niraj Kamani said, if you look at some of the people that we've been hiring on a contributor basis, being able to make sure that we are getting access to both sides of the aisle is a priority because we know the Republicans are going to take over, most likely, in the midterms. Lila, I found that response just stunning. Just shocking that the president of CBS News is not. Now they're in the prognostication business as well. They're telling us that the uh, that the Republicans are going to take over in the midterms, and that's why they're hiring Nick Mulvaney.
3: I think the key word there in what his uh, his explanation is famous. Um, I don't think. And the excuse may be both sidesism. we want to represent both sides of the aisle they they that's not really the main drive here. The main drive is a recognizable name that people will tune in to watch. doesn't really matter how extreme they are, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I think they'll go for as extreme as possible without really turning off their viewers. but it's it's I think a push for non journalists to act as contributors. Um, And they want non-journalists who will bring in additional viewers. Um, The people that he'll bring in are a slightly different audience than the ones they already have. This is a case of maybe maybe getting their current viewers a little bit outraged and getting them to interact more and bringing in new viewers who might be interested in what he has to say. But it doesn't really have anything to do with adequate representation. I don't think it really has anything to do with covering a story completely. I think it has to do with what's the big name that they can bring in that might bring in um, more viewers, more advertisers, more discussion.
0: Susie, I mean, I frankly since not that many people are watching CBS news anyway. And I realize he'll be across a whole bunch of different, you know, platforms, the morning news and all that. But I mean, people are going to tune in to to, to see Mick Mulvaney. I don't think so.
2: I mean, that's that's (laughs) sort of my point of view. Like, is he so famous? Is he such a big name? Like, can you think of a less charismatic (laughs) member of the Trump administration to like pontificate?
0: I couldn't have. I wouldn't have remembered his name if they hadn't have hired him.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's just not, like, great television, so it's just, like, a weird choice on so many levels. Um, Look, I mean, I think news organizations do hire pundits, but really, usually it's to be pundits, right? I think what's weird in this case is they're hiring him to be sort of a budget expert, like, he's he's being given sort of an expert role rather than... Than what most of these guys do, which is go on CNN and sort of pontificate or go on Fox and pontificate with their opinions. So I think that's why it's odd for CBS News to bring him in and into this role. And I guess I just don't buy that you need Mick Mulvaney for access to the GOP, right? I mean, even if you're in the business of assuming the midterms are going to go a certain way, which I mean, we do have some data or whatever polling that in- indicates there may be um, a bit of a turn. W- what's weird is they think this is the guy that's going to really help them with that issue, right? Like, I, I don't know. I just think this is a not very good decision made by a guy who, let's be honest, this is a great opportunity to just gossip about CBS News, because, I mean, I think yes, Neeraj exactly. has not had a great run there so far. He's not particularly well-liked no. from what I hear. Um, in the news organization, He Recently, a very popular bureau chief out of London quit and was like pretty public about his criticism of him. So it just feels like the newsroom is in a bit of a um, revolt already against the current leadership. And so this is just like another reason for them to question his judgment, which I think, you know, this we've all been in newsrooms, right? It's leaders um, either are sort of immediately embraced or it takes a long time. I think he's struggling to, to find that place in the newsroom.
0: You know, Mike, interestingly, uh, Fox also recently announced that they've hired Caitlyn Jenner to get the other side of the story. In other words, the other side of the don't say gay bill or something like that. And, you know, Sean Kennedy, of course, immediately asked Caitlyn Jenner to disavow the, you know, the don't say gay bill. and. She said, well, I'm a patriot, so it was n- not, not really to the issue. But that's another example of a network reaching out to someone who wouldn't normally be on their side to get a different point of view.
1: You know, and I think there is some element in both of these moves that someone ran the numbers and decided this was a good financial investment to get more eyeballs. I don't know whether it would work, but I think there's some element of that. Uh, the one problem that I have, the big problem that I have with the um, – Mick Mulvaney thing, it's not so much that he said that the Uh, pandemic was a media hoax, or he was one of the ones who, remember, tried to get um, the Trumps to pressure Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, or the fact that just about everything he's said and ever checked by PolitiFact is a known lie. The problem I have with it, and makes it a head scratcher in half for CBS News, is the fact that the guy's co-chair of a lobbying firm. He is co-chair of the Actum lobbying firm. Now, why you have someone like that, to me, it's an enormous breach of journalistic ethics. I don't know why it happened. I'm surprised. I'm surprised he's still there. To me it's it's worse than a conflict of interest. If you want to know why people don't trust the media, it's moves like this one.
0: Wish my dad was still still at CBS. I think yeah. he'd have a word or two to I, say about this. I think this. he would. <laughs> All right. Up next, is it revanchism or irredentism? And what is that anyway? Like all of you, I've been doing a lot of reading and watching about what's going on in Ukraine and why. For in-depth analysis, I've been combing through the Washington Post and the New York Times, but it was my twin sister, Martha Fishel, who called to my attention the frequent use of these words in those papers, revanchism and irredentism. All right, now, I am willing to admit I couldn't come up with a good definition of either word, and, well, of course, most of you probably can. I'll help out the few others that were like me. All right, so revanchism. The policy of seeking to retaliate, especially to recover lost territory. So that would make Vladimir Putin a revanchist, right? Or is he an irredentist, a person advocating the restoration of any territory formerly belonging to it? Mike, as I recall, you're a former poli-sci student. Did, were you familiar with these terms?
1: No, you know, I vaguely remembered <laughs> irredentism, uh, but had to read the definition that you sent to me so that to refresh my memory, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, did not remember. It was great to know these terms, but because I think they're very apt yes, in this are. situation. Yeah. Uh, if you're asking me, I think Putin is engaging in the latter, irredentism. Uh, at least in his own mind, I think there is a, a spiritual and cultural element to this that we have failed to see in the United States. It involves him wanting to reunite the ancient Rus, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. With Kiev, the uh, third Rome or the spiritual capital of this, a lot of people don't understand that. They don't understand that there's a spiritual element to this for Putin. Believe it or not, if you go back and look at what he said over the past ten years, he's mentioned it in public at least three times.
0: You know, Lila, that was one of the. That's a, an excellent, you know, a- analysis of that. I was thinking that I wish when I was reading some of these articles that they had expounded. We, we've talked a couple times on this podcast about not getting enough of history especially maybe in television, although they've done a great job. Um, but these two words sort of jumped out at me, and I felt like the, uh, I, that the explanations weren't rich enough, maybe, that we were all presumed to know what they were.
3: I agree with you there. I think that a lot of people, um, these words may as well be Latin. They just, <laughs> they they're a bit. just not going to recognize them And I think, moreover, people aren't able to really connect these words to anything in their experience or anything in recent news or anything that they've studied. Um, Personally, I would call what Putin's doing just flat out aggression. I think the difference between the two is revanchism. um, You're trying to regain lost territory. It's a political policy, so you're trying to take it from another political entity. And what he's doing is trying to take a country from its own people. Um, and I think that that's a, a pretty key difference. Um, but as, as Mike mentioned, there's a long history here. There's a religious aspect. There's an ethnic aspect. There's ethical aspects. There's so many parts to it. And I do think that, um, I mean, it's obviously one for the history books, and maybe they'll do a better job of explaining it. But these two words, they're really important. And I don't think that a lot of people understand what they are or the differences between the two.
0: Did you know them, Susie?
3: Uh, no.
2: So you can count me among <laughs> the people who thought that these, are, these words are basically Latin to me. I was also a poli sci major in college. I've never seen either of these words, or if I have, they were in textbooks that I barely read. Um, <laughs> I I'm not going to attempt to define or say which of these I think is actually happening. Mm. Um, but I also think, you know, to your point, Emily, I think we we do need a little bit of history in this conflict. I think the media has done a better job. The, you know, the media is not a monolith, but I think we've seen a lot of great reporting that's tried to put this in historical context. I don't know that words like this help, right? Because I think mm. the majority of the audience wants to feel like the information they're getting is accessible. And I feel like if I have never seen these words, I mean, I'm not... I have to assume that the majority of Americans have not seen these words, right? So I don't know if using, like, I sort of feel like one of the first rules in editing is like if there's a word in the copy that's very unlikely to be understood, then take it out. It's not it's not doing the work that
0: you think it's doing. That's a, that's an excellent point.
3: My professors used to call those $5 words. Like, stop using $5 words. Use the 25-cent words. Use the words that yeah, more can Yeah, use the words that Susie
2: can understand. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not just Susie, you know, Lila, also? You know, it's
1: funny, uh, as a journalist, I was always taught and tried to impart on people I worked with to use words that everybody would understand. I do a lot of media training. I always talk to my people and say, use words that everybody could understand, can not understand. I remember in, in broadcast news, we were frequently criticized. They'd say, you write for a fifth grade audience. I'd say, no, we don't. We write for the entire audience, for the most educated person and the least educated person. We want everybody to understand our message. And I think with using words like like irredentism and revanchism you fail that test. Well
0: they're I mean unless but, they're defined. And, and they they weren't for the most part. And, and I say you know I hate to just say it out now but there's a sort of a you know a snobbery involved in using these kinds of words like there's a presumption of knowledge that just doesn't exist and you know the editors of both the Washington Post and New York Times I, I don't know maybe they did it once but like a real full-throated explanation of what these things are. But I think it, it, it needs nuance every time you do it. Absolutely. Now for our media rants and raves. Mike, what do you got?
1: I will offer a rave for CNN coverage of the Ukraine war. After all the recent problems on CNN and at CNN with Jeff Sucker, Chris Cuomo, they have, in my opinion anyways, done the best job of any cable news channel now of covering the invasion from day one. They provided human and brave on-scene war reporting, especially Clarissa Ward, Fred Pleitkin, many others, a lot of others. Uh, their anchors, when they have gone there, have mostly made meaningful appearances there. Uh, this may be a TikTok war, but real journalists providing real context is still where it's at for me. And I think CNN, for the most part, has done the best that I've seen as far as cable TV outlets. And at the same time, they haven't ignored all the other stories going on. Sometimes CNN will just focus on one story for weeks at a time. You don't hear anything. They've, they haven't they have ignored what's going on with politics in Washington January 6th, and the uh, pandemic as well.
0: And Will Smith. Or Will Smith, right. (laughs) I agree with you 100%. I think they've just been spectacular. All right, uh, Susie, what have you got?
2: So I'm going to do a rant, which I feel like I always do rants. I never do raves. So next next time I'll try and switch it up. But um, I'm going to do a rant about Elon Musk having um, purchased a majority stake in Twitter. Uh, He's now a majority stakeholder and is also joining the board of directors. So... Um, I mean, I just feel like if you haven't been following Elon Musk on Twitter, it's probably this is a good time to remind you that he was sued by the SEC for some of his tweets. He was sued for defamation by a hero who saved um, children that were trapped in a cave because he called him a pedophile. He has called Trudeau Adolf Hitler. Um, This is a man whose Twitter presence. does not um, give me faith in his ability to really move the needle in making Twitter a less toxic and um, problematic place for misinformation. I mean, he's basically just like an erratic, narcissistic, um, maybe unstable billionaire. So what could go wrong? <laughs>
0: <Those senators>. <laughs> <laughs> I think you nailed that one. Exactly. All right.
3: Lila, what do you got? So I'd like to rave about this piece by Jeremy B. Merrill and Steven Zeitcheck in The Washington Post about cryptocurrency scams. Um, it does a really great job of explaining a complicated topic by putting a human face on it. One of a cop knows less. So take a listen to what he's up against right now. He can't get to that money, which totals about $15,000 in cryptocurrency. It's been lifted from him by scammers. But thanks to the quirks of crypto, the cash sits visible to him online via the blockchain, taunting him. The thing about crypto is it's a really huge and a barely regulated industry. People think crypto refers only to Bitcoin, Bitcoin. But this story really um, untangles a bit of a scam and, and really highlights some of the dangers uh, that people might not be aware about, that even savvy people who think they know exactly what they're doing with this currency can still end up getting taken in by. Yeah,
0: it was really, it was creepy, I thought. Really good. All right. Well, finally, I have a rant for ABC News, specifically the Kardashians, the interview with Robert Roberts. Listen to this bit.
3: Kim. Courtney, Chloe, and Chris. The new interview. You
0: ready? I'm ready. Are you ready?
3: That'll have everyone talking.
0: Let us talk about relationships. Oh, my Lord. The Robin Roberts interview. Okay, in truth, this is a promotion for the new Kardashian show on Hulu, which is owned by Disney, which owns ABC, which is fine. That's all fine. Just don't call it news. Don't call it a news special. It has nothing to do with news. It's entertainment. And by the way, if you want to be entertained by the Kardashians and you want to sit and listen to Robin Roberts ask them about their relationships, I'm fine with that. That's, you know, we all need a break. Just don't call it news. It's it doesn't even barely resemble news. We've talked about CBS and none of us are going to get hired by CBS here today or ABC probably the same reason and I understand, you know, it's a new landscape and I'm sure this will be a very popular show and bring in a lot of money. It's just not news. Anybody disagree?
1: I completely agree. Although I am not familiar with it, I completely agree with your assessment.
0: You'll get familiar. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you all. That is it for this edition of Beat the Press. My thanks to Lila Alphonse of the Boston Globe, media consultant Susie Bannakarim, and former NECN anchor Mike Nikitas. Join us on Twitter at Beat the Press. Beat the Press is brought to you in part by Wilder Strategies, a Boston-based communications and public relations company, Focused on cutting through the clutter to get your message heard. Wilder Strategies, helping tell the stories that matter. Contact wilderstrategies.com. I'm Emily Rooney. Thanks for listening.
1: Beat the Press is powered by Mudhouse Media.